Suppose Henry Ford II wanted to build the greatest race car the world's ever seen to win the 24 hours of Le Mans. What's it take? Well, it takes something money can't buy. Money can buy speed. What well, in about speed? You need a pure racer behind the wheel of your car. That's Ken Miles. I don't trust him an inch. We heard he's difficult. No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. No, whatever it is, Shell, no. Trust me. Today we're sitting down with 4V Ferrari's director and producer James Mangold and editors Michael McCusker and Andrew Buckland in their offices on the Fox Studio lot. Based on a true story, the film follows American car designer Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, and race car driver Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale, who team up to build a racing car for the Ford Motor Company to challenge Enzo Ferrari at the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans. The film earned four Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture for James Mangold and the Producers, as well as film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing. Mangold's directing credits include Logan, 310 to Yuma, and Walk the Line. He also earned an Academy Award nomination for the Logan screenplay. McCusker has been editing Mangold's films for more than a decade and earned an additional Oscar nomination for Walk the Line. Years ago, Buckland worked with Mangold and McCusker as an apprentice editor and more recently rejoined the team. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank Would you. each of you introduce yourselves? James. Uh, I'm Jim Mangold, director of Ford Ferrari. I'm Mike McCusker, one of the editors on Ford Ferrari. And I'm Andrew Buckland, one of the other editors. And the three of you have been working together for quite some time. Mike, maybe you'd like to start. How did all of you meet? Oh, it was, uh, we were just saying, it was about, it was 19 years ago, and I was working as an assistant for David Brenner, and Jim had hired Dave to do uh, Kate and Leopold in New York. So I traveled to New York and met Jim there and met Drew in the cutting room. He was the film assistant on that show. We became fast friends. and uh, We were in the Brill building, weren't we? We were, right, we're, the we were right in Sound One. We, we had the crappiest cutting rooms in the building, but, you know, it worked out. Yeah, I have dark memories in those. <laughs> Not about Kay and Leopold, earlier Mir- Miramax experience. <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, that was a Miramax experience. It was a Miramax yeah, experience. Yeah, so it was the I still have, I have more. I have further Miramax dark <laughs> memories. <laughs> And then from there, the first project you edited, though, Mike, was we, Walk After the that, line. I made a film, Identity, that uh, that David Brenner also was the lead editor on. And did, were you an associate editor on that movie? Yes, yes. exactly. So, so then Mike kind of moved up from being an assistant to cutting some sequences with Dave supervising. And then on Walk the Line, that was the first picture that Mike cut with Dave me. Dave didn't want to do it. He wanted to take some time off and write. So I got, I got an opportunity. It was a damn great opportunity. It was pretty awesome. Andrew, when did you come on? I came back into the scene in 2009, actually. He kind of disappears in I He disappears. And then comes because back I for was a in big New York. Finish. He was in New York and in then New Buenos York Aires and Spain. It was all over the place. Yeah, and then uh, they go off sea in New York. At the time, films would come in to New York. They would shoot. They would leave. So uh, most of the time, assistants there would just be working on production. But anyways, Mike called me after I got back from my worldly travels and um, asked me to assist him in New York. And that movie was Night and Day. So um, then I saw Jim again, and we all kind of reconnected. Wait, we didn't cut Night and Day in New York. No, it was in Boston. Said, it was we in were Boston, in Boston. Boston. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was in New York, but oh, you, you called me. Oh, you came up me, to Boston. And then, yes. 
I and came you, on. you were contemplating making a move to LA. So I, I just kind of took advantage of that. Exactly. And since then, you've done a wide range of genres, uh, Western with 310 to Yuma. Um, what attracted you, Jim, to the Ford v. Ferrari story? I am always attracted by, I think, the same thing, which is a story that meets kind of two criteria. One is interesting to me, and two, I think it can exist as a movie, meaning for me that means there's a component of it that is cinematic, not just documentarian, meaning I'm not just shooting people talking about interesting things. There's a component of the movie that is interesting to me in some way. For Ford Ferrari, what was interesting to me was the racing component, and actually what was inviting was the fact that I felt like not a lot of projects had, it was not a genre we had seen a lot of, and when we did, similar to making 310 Yuma, I felt like at least the kind of movie I would want to see, I hadn't seen. I also loved the characters in it, and um, the story about Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, and in a way the title's kind of a misleading title. The movie's so much more about the grunts on the ground than it is the corporations, but in a sense, I think the way I always responded to it and identified with it is that it's so much like what I go through, what we go through, getting movies made, you know. Um, movies are essentially not unlike race cars, profoundly expensive and romantic and sexy, but you have to convince people to take a leap to make your car, as it were. The races were absolutely thrilling to watch, but what made them all the more tense and exciting to watch was really that you were so involved in the characters and the story before you get to the race. Would you talk about that? I mean, was it always structured that way? Because if you look at the whole movie, you took quite a while on the characters before you get to really the racing scenes. Well, I think we're revealing what's most important to us in the way we're taking our time. I think that if we go back in time to this magical moment before movies were made for 13-year-olds, none of the things we did are that interesting on a kind of formal level. They're only interesting to the degree that our entire world has gone from writing adult fiction to writing child or adolescent fiction. So that when people remark that there isn't action for a long time, it's almost like compared to Endgame, yes. But the, but the fact is that the, the reality is that that whole 12 minutes and something new has to blow up dictum is not the way the French Connection worked. Right. It's not the way Jaws worked. It's not even the way Indiana Jones worked. It's just the way the last 15 years of boilerplate, something has to tickle their bums every nine minutes kind of movie making. And so in a way, yes, I think one thing that unites the three of us and a lot of our other collaborators as well is we miss that other kind of movie. We grew up on that other kind of movie. And I think it certainly is the connection of the three of us creatively is that we're always talking first about how, who we're following, why we're, it's, it's not just a cut is cool. It has to be, is it, taking me deeper into one of these characters, hopefully one of the main ones. Mike, do you want to elaborate on how you use that approach for the editing to make it such an exciting movie to watch? Well, I mean, it's just stay out of the way, particularly when you have great actors. I mean, Christian and Matt are just doing amazing work. And um, 
it's a spoil of riches. It's also stressful as an editor because you oftentimes feel like uh, instead of trying to hide a bad performance, you're worried that you're not going to get all of the good stuff in. <laughs> so it's uh, for me, it was really just making sure that you were figuring out which scenes were really honoring which character at, at which point, you know, I mean, really modulating that and uh, making sure that you felt like that you were in the space with the character. I know that the comment I get from many people when they watch this movie is, first of all, they can't believe it's over as quickly as it's over. And they're so kind of immersed in, in the movie. They, they, they like the racing because they like the characters. And, you know, that just was the trick at the top of the movie was to really figure out how much time we were going to spend laying the laying the groundwork for these characters in their backstory before we overstayed our welcome and we might have the audience going okay can we get to the racing luckily i think we we figured it out but that was that was the trickiest part drew how did the two of you work do you divide up scenes or it was pretty fluid we didn't really have a method of what scenes we were working on i know when Mike's working, for example, like um, Daytona, and there's a lot of footage coming in, Jim's still shooting, so there's scenes that are constantly coming in. So it was it was just it made sense. I would just take the scenes coming in, and and we would work from that. And and you know, there's always an opportunity for Mike and I to revisit these scenes during the director's cut. And if I do a first pass on a scene. You know, later on, Mike's working with Jim, and they wanna they wanna take a look at that scene. They'll they'll have a look at that, and they'll do a tweak on that scene, and vice versa. It's pretty fluid. You want us to think like them. Enzo Ferrari will go down in history as the greatest car manufacturer of all time. Why? Is it because he built the most cars? No. It's because of what his cars mean victory. Ferrari wins at Le Mans. People, they, they want some of that victory. Now, what if the Ford badge meant victory and meant it where it counts with the first group of 17-year-olds in history with money in their pockets? We're here at the Fox lot, and we're, I know we're sitting at a community table in the editing suite where you cut the movie, and I know a lot of collaboration happens at this table. Tell us about that. Well, this space is where I write, it's where we edit, it's where sound is cut, it's where music is cut, it's where future projects are developed, it's where um, actor, art actor department in here. Yeah, we, we have, have the art pre-productions in, in this space. We run, way. I try and run as much as I can through, It's. I'm very lucky to have this space. I mean, it's a great space with many, many smaller offices for everyone to work in, but I'm a big believer in cross-pollination in no one getting too precious. I think one of the toughest adjustments I had to make as a director, coming from doing everything myself as an adolescent, making Super 8 films and then going to film school and I'd cut them and I'd record the sound and I was kind of a one-man band doing visual effects and figuring all this stuff out. I mean, not good, but... But... Um, <laughs> but um, was when you start doing it, quote-unquote, professionally... These guys have heard me say, you become a brain in a jar. You can't touch anything. You're kind of just this this talking brain that people wheel in and out of one person's sphere and into another. And um, 
we have unions for that. Yes, and and <laughs> and they're very useful. But one of the things that's not so useful to me is the way people get turfy. Not so much just protecting their turf from me, but also protecting their turf from each other. I, as I've worked, I've really mostly enjoyed crew who invite and welcome the thoughts of others. Or more importantly, it's not that they have to listen or do what they're hearing from someone. It's just that they're not so insecure, I put it, that they can't hear it. I think it really is valuable for everyone to be able to kind of talk and run into each other and worry aloud or whatever. Or even sometimes if like the three of us are just here at this table having a discussion and the dialogue editing team or music editor is just sitting there eating his tuna sandwich he's absorbing stuff he's hearing what's 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 bugging us and it's also it's that ability you have that you can get an idea and mike can go down the hall grab me or grab ted on music or and go hubba 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 and then leave i mean just kind of like can you find something in real three there's this section or can you come down and see me and it's just i mean obviously this could happen in a lot of cutting rooms but i love the way these guys run this their space and interfacing it with it in which there's a sense that people can poke their heads in and kind of understand where everyone's at and try and fight over out. dialogue yes and f- yes new design okay. uh, yeah. yes <laughs> but we i mean there's a lot of that going on and there's a lot of them hearing about what's coming next for me there's a lot of i can also it's hard to sit behind one of these guys and you know, the glacial pace of cutting is sometimes it's like, yeah, I either go catatonic and I'm snoring behind them in a chair or I'm consuming untold quantities of popcorn or I'm, I'm, or, or running away to take calls. And then, um, it's really great to also be able for me to be able to kind of get out of their space and go visit music or effects or go right and then to be able to kind of come back and do it um i think all of it makes gives you healthy perspective the room is great but it's also you know the pop how it's populated and i think that yeah i think that over the years it's been filled with filmmakers and i mean that in the best possible sense which is there's we're it's not just the three of us as jim referred to earlier everybody's thinking the movie story and character I mean, it's our dialogue editor is, our music editor is, uh, you know, the assistants, I challenge them to like talk to me about the movie. I leave my door open. I want to hear what they have to say about stuff. And so, um, so everybody's thinking about the movie from a story place. It's not just like, do we have that cool sound of a car or do we get that right piece of music? Of course, that's part of the job, but they're thinking about it in the same way we're thinking about it. And you know, that sounds like it's that should be obvious, but I, you know, I've been in other situations where it's like, you know, I do, I'm compartmentalized. I do this thing and I only do this one thing. And that's not what happens in this cutting room. And, um, and you know, we get, a, I roll in in the morning, get my cup of coffee and we start talking about stuff and it can be just a free form, a bunch of grab assery about what's happening in the political world. And then suddenly it segues into the movie and you're talking about something and Jim comes in, what are you saying? It's like, well, you know, it just occurred to us. And that's sometimes where we get our greatest ideas. It's just off the cuff in the moment. I mean, we had, I brought up that thing about new design earlier, but like that was one of the, that was one of the more, that was one of the funnier experiences I've ever had in a cutting room was that lunch when we were here. Do you remember, Do you remember that? Well, let's, Do you remember let's talk that? about oh, you that remember scene. That? Okay, well. <laughs> you go. Well. <laughs> help an audience who doesn't know what you're talking about, oh, like well. I don't. Okay. Um, understand. There's a scene in the film in Willow Springs. 
Yes. When uh, Ken is driving, he's they're doing the warm up lap, and then Dan Gurney shouts to Miles, "Hey, what's with the new windshield?" And he says, "New design." And he says, "New design." And then uh, at one point, which which that the joke of which for the audience is that Ken smashed his own windshield yeah, in the previous scene. In a a red red but during the process, at one point, we were so Jim and I were kind of doing what I call the Zamboni pass, which is at some point I usually like to take, take the movie and go through it, and we were trying to figure out how much of like the idiosyncratic Ken Miles, how how much we could go with before it became like it, you know too much, and so we lifted the line for a while. And uh, during that time, whether Jim knows this or not, every single person on the crew came to me while Jim wasn't around and says, you got to put that line back in. That line is great. You got to put that back in. So I kind of mentioned to Jim, hey, you know. Um, it happened right here. You know, actually, am I just, I, you mind, uh, you know, maybe we should put that line back in. He's like, no, no, we just live without it. I think, it's, I think it's really working. I said, okay, fine. So we're at lunch here, all 15 of us one day, and uh, it somehow comes up in conversation, and I just take my cue. I'm like, okay. So I made this impassioned plea to Jim. I'm sitting at one end of the table. Jim's at the other. I'm like, you had five think, arguments. Yeah. And it was like, and, and I yeah. just, I, I said, it's about, it's about his, he's intrepid and it talks to him about like how smart he is that he can come up with some, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't know. And finally at the end of it, I just threw up my arms and I looked at the crew and I said, I tried, I tried, I did everything I could. And there was a there pregnant was a pause. pause and, and I said, new design. And he mimicked <laughs> the line and Jim just turned and said, okay, fine, put it in. <laughs> and I was like, kidding me <laughs> like i did everything that you're taught in editorial school to like appeal to the director and it became a, the guy some, the, the other guy mimics the line and gets it into the movie let's talk about another scene um there's one during which i understand also went through some changes when carol shelby is called into ford headquarters and you have the perception that he might be fired tell us about that scene the scene that's in the movie right now, Carol's sitting in the waiting room and he's watching this folder go back and forth and you can hear behind the closed doors that something's going on. There's some impassioned kind of conversation. That scene was actually shot. And I showed it to Jim and, you know, as I recall, Jim was like, yeah, it's just, it's not working. It seems like we're a little flat. And then Jim came up with the idea, like, why don't we take that, that sort of preamble conversation that was on screen where the executives are sitting in the room and having a having a debate about whether or not Carol was going to make it uh going to be fired or not and put it behind the door and play the scene more like kind of like in a principal's office and so I did that and you know he came back this was during production I think at one point and I showed him the scene again and I had executed that you know it was it was a really interesting it was a very interesting moment because Jim looked at it, I said wow that's much better I think it works pretty well right now. And the stuff that you've done inside the rest of the scene is I like those changes too. And I said, I didn't do anything. And it was just, to me, it was really exemplary of like, sometimes you feed too much to the, to the audience. And, you know, by just taking out and not letting the audience know where you're going and letting them discover it, it's like, that's the great thing about making movies. I mean, I love it when that stuff happens. And that was, that was a really fun moment. I like that scene a lot because it just holds, it holds the tension because you just don't know how he's going to win the day. And he the does. part I, I had done a rewrite, um, in the months before we shot. And one of the scenes that I had done a lot of work on was that scene. And that red folder preamble was something I wrote because the, the, the idea of the scene was always there, but it was just Carol coming in and having this conversation. And I felt like 
it wasn't a cinematic that there was a I wanted to understand in some way through the camera what the problem making a car for Ford was and so interestingly like in my mind the thing I'm trying my id is trying to protect is when I'm looking at this sequence and it's not working with Mike is I want to protect the most vulnerable thing is the scene of Matt Damon watching a red folder move around like in the I'm not young in this business anymore I know the easiest thing to lift would be kind of a moment like that but I really like it and I like that this quote-unquote action movie is stopping to have a kind of action sequence about a red folder and I like the perversity of it I also like because it's what the movie is about which is this kind of interface between art and commerce and committees and and auteurs and how that's really what the movie's about and um, and in some way that red folder to me became a way to say that so every interest for me was in trying to figure out how to make that idea work and not also be a waste because it took me half a day to shoot that damn (laughs) (laughs) nothing in there about my trunk and your lovely little portmanteau you're holding the 62 edition of the scca you can stick this bloody sticker where the sun hey hey bill hey bill what seems to be the problem the problem is that bill here is an asshole. Is no, he doesn't mean that. No, yes, he does. No, yes, he, really he does. Yes, no, he really does think that Bill is an asshole. I'm just doing my job here. Bill, 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 in my experience, there is, listen to me, something like this, there's always a middle ground. All right, now Ken's out of line. And I'm just right. doing my job. I understand you are. You know how he gets on a race day. You know that. All right, but you're not going to DQ us over at Trump. <laughs> Let's talk about the edit of Le Mans. We were able to really pull off that that sequence because of all of the work that we did in previs, and I was actually involved in that very early on. So in a weird way, I kind of cut the scene twice. I was, I was here working on the movie almost two and a half months before they started shooting and uh, working with the previs team because to, to, that we were concentrating all our efforts on that sequence and, um, you know, helping to not only cut, but give feedback on the shot design and sometimes production design or ideas about, you know, some drama or whatnot. But just to me, it was a great example of why an editor should really be involved in previs as early as possible, because um, you're thinking of things, how they're going to fall out when you actually get the real footage. And sometimes previs kind of can go into a flight of fancy and you find yourself, if you're not there looking at something, it's like, I don't think this is going to work. And suddenly, and that's what ends up being shot. We've had enough experience over the years. That wasn't the case, but um, it was imperative because we had such kind of a limited amount of time to get that sequence right and to get the racing out and the course right. I mean, the course doesn't exist in Le Mans the way it did 50 years ago. It's so we had to double the track and we had to do it in five different locations in Georgia on, on you know different you know country roads and so and then the main start and finish line and stands and pits were in southern california so every time you see a car do one lap you're seeing it in four different locations in georgia and then in southern california and then back through those locations in in georgia again so for the filmmakers in your audience of whom i assume is a good many of them the um 
you can only imagine the amount of preparation you need to do to be able to track a car through five locations on two sides of a continent, matching the dirt level, the speed, the position of other cars, um, the light quality, the wetness of the road, the precipitation, the screen direction, um, as well as what was most important to us was just tracking what the people are feeling inside the car. Early on um, in prep, a producer on the film uh, said to me, well, there's only three ways you can shoot cars, because I used to work in sports or something like that. And I was like, it was the kind of horrifying thing you never say to me. Like, <laughs> don't ever reduce my movie to a fucking formula. Like, there's only three, three shots. There's only three there's the panning. There's the mount. There's the because it's like yeah, and and what that became a kind of driving. I mean, I remember that moment so much because I was panic stricken when he said that. Like, if this fucker is right, I'm about to make the most boring fucking movie ever. <laughs> and and yet the answer isn't to create lots of gimmick shots either meaning the answer for me in terms of the racing and the puzzle we had to face both in planning the race and in in cutting the pieces after we'd gathered them was how do you stay connected to what they're doing and understand the choices at least most of the choices they're making why are they pulling into the pit what are they struggling with why is he downshifting why is he breaking why is he upset with himself why is he not because in in the weird way movies work no one just does no one understands why you don't just step on the gas all the way and quote win you know like like there's a simple level like if your horse isn't faster than their horse then your horse must not be good enough it couldn't be that you're laying back so you're trying to convey to an audience all these colors and shades of a race that that you ha we I knew we would have to convey and articulate because no one's going to stay interested for a race that feels like it went on well not feels that went on for 24 hours if it doesn't have kind of turns of the wheel if there aren't changes of circumstance for many changes of circumstance for all our characters um, in it and that's I think when Mike's talking about the value of him being involved in the previous is that we have so many wonderful specialists in our business, but the danger and what I'm always looking for, like even our previous guy, Clint, um, like I like him because he feels the characters. Mm -hmm. I don't want to fly through a keyhole on the wings of a fucking butterfly. <laughs> I, I don't want to. It's like I'm so sick of these bullshit shots developed on game engines, on televisions that are just, just one flying impossible bullshit shot after another. And... I'm bored with it, first of all. I think audiences are bored with it. I think it's it turns every kind of visceral human moment into some kind of display of uh, pyrotechnics and technology that in 20 years is going to look silly. And um, uh, we'll just look the same way cheesy movies the 50s now look when they're like, look what we can do with whatever the technology was at that moment. Because you're not gripped in the moment and you're just showing off. And what you're showing off with a video game will be able to do better in six years. And so the, I'm really, as you can tell, um, quite evangelical with the people who work with me about avoid. To, I, I literally say don't put the camera where you can't really put the camera. I don't want to see previs of some, I don't want to have to figure out some 400 fucking thousand dollar cable cam shot to produce something that some 
kid thought of on a previous table on a Sunday afternoon for no reason than it, quote, looks cool. It's like, what's telling the story? And why now? And why would we be doing this, quote, cool shot right now? What would it be saying? Is it saying something about geography, about what they're feeling, about... Anyway, this is what drives the way we're thinking, and so it's great because editors live and die, really, by the emotions of the characters and keeping you interested. And so they live in fear, when they look at previs, of ending up with this big steaming pile of cool shots, <laughs> because they've been there before. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't make a bunch of cool shots into a cool sequence. It looks great on a reel, which is why each person further down the food chain wants to collect those shots. Because they look good on their on their effects company reel and their previs reel and on their on the if they're a camera assistant on their techno crane use reel and their but it doesn't serve the movie. It serves, it's like the military industrial complex writ into show business. It's like, use this shit because we built it. You reduce characters to graphics. That's what you end up doing when it becomes make the other like Faden. One of the things we're dealing with in this movie is like, and I that's kept, Faden Papa Michael, Faden Papa Michael, our DP. Um, you know, when I with a different DP when I made this movie a long time ago called Copland, it was one day I was shooting on the George Washington Bridge and the camera was mounted shooting Michael Rappaport in a car. And the the mount came off while we were going, you know, the lower level of the bridge is studded. And so your cars vibrate and it shook the camera literally off the mount. But the 10 seconds before the camera came off the mount were the most beautiful fucking shot. The vibration. So this is just but one example. The whole world of cinema now is about vibration reduction is gyroscopic diggity-doggity-doos of every kind that reduce, smooth, balance, remove bumps. One of the things we realized pretty early is one of the greatest indicators of velocity is just vibration in the cab. Is particulates in the air and this kind of way that is not the same thing you can get green screen with a grip and a two-by-four jiggling the car. It is a kind of insane level of vibration that's going on inside the car that makes you feel um, the, the makes you feel the propulsion, the engine, the everything, and puts it on the screen. That's a long way around to saying that everywhere we are trying to analyze how do we make you feel what it is to be Ken, and therefore to understand the the thrill of being Ken. I also wanted to talk about um, other things that really continue to build the tension and the story in that scene, which are you have the reaction shots of Enzo Ferrari, you have the discussions in the booth with the Ford executives. Tell us about some of those additional pieces that you put in that, again, just continue to elevate the tension and forward the story throughout the race. For me, the culmination of Le Mans really begins with all the track, all the dramatic track that we laid uh, in the beginning of the film, we know who these people are. We, when we see Enzo Ferrari up in the stand, I know who he is. I, I, kind of, I have a sense of his passion, his, his emotion, the machinations of BB uh, on the sidelines trying to manipulate, you know, the the race. Like I, I know who he is, and I don't. I think all these elements put into Le Mans wouldn't have been as effective if we didn't have all this sort of weight that we experienced in the beginning of character and motivation. I think um, Drew's being a really important point. It's really the culmination of the whole movie is at the very end and how all these elements are just displaying themselves. 
the racing miles is connected with the car he is pure racing you know we we had an understanding of that in the beginning of the movie but we can viscerally experience it the at the end like he becomes speed uh, all those elements uh, i think you know because of what we did in the beginning of the film really can emphasized and really just made that whole experience a lot more powerful you can't just push the car hard the whole way right that's right you have to be kind to the car you feel the poor thing groaning underneath you if you're going to push a piece of machinery to the limit and expect it to hold together you have to have some sense of where that limit is look out there out there is the perfect lap no mistakes every gear change every corner perfect you see it i mean when i'm shooting i'm thinking a lot about editing not exactly how it's going to edit but a lot about the pieces that we'll need um the dominating things i'll think about very often are how ways they can come in I have the same predicament, I'm not in the room with them at that time, but I have the same predicament in the sense that, well, how are we coming in? And the way I, what I always ask myself is, well, what did we leave? I'll look, when I'm starting on the morning, I'll always wanna look at what's the outgoing scene before the incoming scene, because the cut from the outgoing scene into the incoming scene is the most kind of extravagantly um, uh, meaningful cut in modern linear movie making, meaning it's it's the only cut that that defies all our seeing and living experiences. You cannot cut in a moment from a kitchen in Culver City to a warehouse in Shanghai. We cannot blink our eyes and have that happen. That cut is something beyond our living experiences. The regular cuts between matching singles and overs, and we experience it, you're I'm seeing you in a kind of medium over, he, our eyelines all match because I'm in the right place, you're looking left, he's looking right, it all works. The whole system wasn't D.W. Griffith. It was our fucking eyes that we built the whole cinema system from. But the one part that defies that is that ability in a moment to go into someone's past, in a moment to plunge forward to the future, in a moment to go 4,000 miles away. And those cuts, I try and think very hard about what am I leaving? What is the beat that's ending and what is the visual? What am I on? Am I in Christian? Am I on his hand on the gear shift? Am I on? And what is the incoming shot and will it work against that? So I'm not just leaving a just kind of stew of crap for them to sort through <laughs> later. That There's some plan for them to accept or reject. <laughs> and do you want to just comment on the last part where Carol Shelby is directed to tell Ken Miles to slow down in order to have the Fords all cross the finish line together? We planned it all in advance, so we had the whole race, the whole of it, including that, all vised, except for, um, and, but not all in video viz. I also have a, yeah, a lot of storyboards, story yeah. And and I even had the actors come in and act out scenes so that we had like like them doing the lines in our previs because we there was just no way that you're gonna have units in two states, you're gonna be, there were too many pieces to keep track of to not kind of have some confidence how it was going to go together. And in the end, it did largely go together how we had planned it, but there were many surprises and innovations and right. shots invented along the way. And luckily, the one great thing about 
the entirety of that Le Mans sequence was that because it was shot in so many different places, we had many new bites at the apple. Mm -hmm. Meaning after we had returned from Georgia and we had all that footage, we still had not done anything at the start and finish line. Right. So I will remember Mike and and some of our other editors, mm -hmm. particularly one, yeah. sent me, I'm not using his name because it's I was very mean. I got <laughs> in the middle of, of in the, Mike dispatched him to put all the real shots in the place of the previous. Just at regular sort of really Just to loops. kind of assemble them. assemble them. And I'm in the middle of shooting and I'm exhausted and I get this quick time or whatever picks video to watch and I'm like on two hours sleep and ready to heave and I press play on this picks video with all the stuff for the last three months I've been shooting stuck together in this thing and it's it's a I literally wrote all these guys and don't like at 3 a.m. that like this is the single most depressing moment of anything of my entire career I don't know how to say this I can't be dishonest about this it is just the most half-assed pathetic sequence I have ever, something like that right yes yeah yeah yes and, I will I concur and I yes. say it with love I said I really was like like I don't know if I'm gonna work tomorrow after yes. watching this cut and, and, then I, and then i had to i had to, I had to you know you had to talk a couple I had to talk, yeah I, had to, I qualify the whole thing and say <laughs> he said it's it just it's just putting ball. it together we're not we're not trying this is not the movie it's not it's just, I'm just we're like way in the middle beginning process but it was very illuminating for me however painful about speed some of the times the ways we were driving the cars just were not fast enough the shots were not fast enough we weren't feeling the speed of the cars it was traumatic and i did get another bite of the apple because when we went to to um, aqua dolce and we shot those sequences based on what these guys had put together and 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 starts things that had started to work and also things that were still not working I realized uh, what I needed to course correct to kind you know, it, it, I guess the point I'm making is because all of Le Mans was not shot in one month, but in pieces over several months, there were many chances to learn. And, and, the, and, and what was most startling and what was not in that first video they sent me because I hadn't shot any of it yet was Christian in the car. And it is such a miraculous thing to see how good some of the same shit looks when you know he's in that car and when you didn't. Meaning that when it was just a collection of shots of cars moving in different positions, reacting, very dynamic, very cool shots, but just without his humanity connected to them, that was what I was reacting to. And, that, and I realized that was almost the most dominating thing missing um, was just how much the actor, particularly one of that caliber, is going to add and how every movement of that car now becomes an extension of this guy we love, as opposed to just a blue car moving left. And right. it's a big change. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and thank congratulations you. on thank the film. You. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.